0: There's a nice sort of restauranty bit in this weird chateau place. And I thought, I'll have a glass of champagne in the sunshine. I was like 21. I think I was 20 at the time. I was 20. Is that legal? In the States, probably not. But at the chateau, legal.
1: (laughs) Considering where you are, yes. (laughs) That's so funny. You're listening to Skip Intro with me, Krista Smith. The daughter of two ballet dancers, Elizabeth Debicki, was born in Paris before relocating to Melbourne, Australia, where she grew up. Her interest in classical dance quickly evolved into a love of storytelling. Her passion for acting was fully realized during her training at Melbourne's Victorian College of the Arts. Just one year after graduation, Elizabeth received a life-changing call. Director Baz Luhrmann had watched her showreel and wanted Elizabeth to audition for his next project assumptuous adaptation of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. During what was only her second ever screen test, Elizabeth landed the role of the mysterious Jordan Baker and starred in the film alongside Tobey Maguire, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Carey Mulligan in perhaps the most glamorous breakout role on record. In the years since, Elizabeth has continued to display her range and magnetic presence in the series The Night Manager and in films like Widows and Tenet. In 2020, it was announced that Elizabeth would play the final iteration of Princess Diana in the last two seasons of The Crown. Before season five even aired, photos of Elizabeth on set in Diana's iconic revenge dress revealed her uncanny resemblance to the late princess. However, it's Elizabeth's on-screen expression of Diana's mannerisms, intonation, and spirit that truly elevates the tremendous undertaking of embodying Diana in her final years. Today, we'll discuss her path through the industry, her experience taking on the challenging role of Diana, and the impact it's had on her both on and off set. You just wrapped the finale, basically, season six of The Crown.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah, um, it's funny because it's well it, it hasn't sunk in, but but also, I. There inevitably there, there are pickups and there's some reshoots and there's marketing and so yeah. it doesn't. It's like a, it's like a dwindling wrap, but you know, like a slow, a slow goodbye.
1: Has Diana left your body at all? Like, I mean, I know obviously you'll have to do little pickups and ADR and all that, but has has her psyche left you or will that take some time?
0: I really don't know. I honestly don't know, and I'm starting to think about it quite seriously because I'm I'm now at the point thinking what does the process look like to for that to not be in my body? First of all, it's like the actual weight of the workload is in your body for a long time. Like two years is a long time for me to play the same role. I've never Mm -hmm. done that before. So just the kind of like the machinery that you're in, the kind of constant, like, you know, one of the things I really struggle with as an actor, it's such a simple, practical thing. But to for my body clock to sort of wake up at all different hours and work nights and then work mornings and you're up at 3am and then you're shooting till 3am by the end of the week. And that kind of like back and forth of fatigue, I sort of live in that. I've lived in that world for like two years. I sort of think it, it produces really good work because you are under this way where you can you cannot control. It's not great for like anything personal, like your relationships, there is no social life, your sleep patterns are shot. But in a work sense, in a creative sense, you just sort of like slip under the wave of the timeline of the show, of making the thing. And so that's definitely still in my body. Like it's been quite radical for me to just think I'm going to rest. I'd like I don't know how to do it. I just, I really don't. I've never really known how to do it. And I really don't know how to do it now. Um, so I'm trying to teach myself to do that. And in in the process of that, I've been thinking this week, like how much of that role is in me and when does it leave and has it already begun?
1: And how did your experience filming the new season compare to last season?
0: I think this season was a very different season for me. Last season was, it's a really, it's a really unique thing to, to do a season of TV. You know, I, I was listening to Julia Garner talk about it the other day. In regards to her last season of Ozark, mm-hmm. we did a little panel for sex and it's It would be, like, a really interesting conversation to talk to a bunch of actors, like, how different, how kind of, like, delicate you're... And, like, and also kind of, like, full of grief, this possession of this person you've created, but you know you have to give them over at the end of the thing. Not like the life continues in an imaginative sense, like, actually the story is about the end of a person and so Mm -hmm. how do you process that and I wonder if we don't sort of like gradually say goodbye like if I when I finished season five I was just so in that thing still because I knew I had to hold that space open even with a hiatus and shooting to just like go straight back in that person was just absolutely still actively in my brain and I was thinking about it constantly and and then I think this has been like a slow, gradual, um, maybe like a handing over or something. And uh, so maybe the process has already started. It's I'm starting to get these funny pangs, like my, my phone and my laptop and scrapbooks and everything is just full of imagery of her. And it's really funny now when I look at it, I get this funny, like sad jolt because... I guess the process of it no longer being the most active thing in my brain is starting, you know, and then it's, so uh, it's like the person, your possession, I suppose, in a way, like it, you have to release that hold. Mm-hmm. They just become slowly, it slowly becomes different. Yeah.
1: Fades a little bit. I mean, you were born in the nineties. So, When was the first time that actually you were aware of Diana? I mean, for me, I I came of age in, like, the 90s. Diana, I I, have—she landed on me in a way like no other, like I think everybody. I don't Mm. think I'm unique in that, obviously. And she still Mm. is such a powerful symbol for so many things, right? All of it. In the same way Mm. that Marilyn Monroe is that symbol, she still is almost just as powerful as she was before she died. And obviously Mm. the crown has brought this back, you know, beautifully, Peter Morgan. But when was the first time Elizabeth and you were in Australia or you were in London and then you moved to Australia? Like at what point did you know who Princess Diana was?
0: Uh, I always say that it was her funeral that I became conscious of her. And it was, I think, like a lot of people my age, I was seven uh, it was watching my mother watch the funeral mm. in our little suburban house in Australia, and watching my mother so overcome by sadness, which you remember quite distinctly as a child when you see your mum cry like that, you try and locate the source of it, and you don't always understand what's going on. And and I remember, yeah, sitting sitting on the on our like shag pile carpet my legs crossed watching the funeral and not obviously not really knowing what was going on, but really feeling my mother's grief about this event and then probably getting an explanation about it. I think prior to that, you know, she was always on the front cover of all our kind of trashy Australian woman's Women's Weekly and all that, you know, so probably saw her face every time I was in an aisle at the supermarket. But, um, yeah, that was my first really conscious memory of, of understanding this person existed and, uh, and watching the boys as well, because I was, you know, so close to their age in a way. And, um, Understanding that 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 this was a funeral that it was somebody's mum, I think that was probably the entry point. You know, that's, and of course that was the point of so much grief for so so many people. And um, I guess that was it. And then and then my relationship. It's really interesting what you said about Marilyn and and Diana as well, because it's sort of like, their you know their power now is of a different kind of. Presence—it's sort of deified in so many ways, and and they have become icons. But they they also hold this active potency for people still, and it's really interesting to think about why and how that's shifted from the real life people to sometimes in playing somebody like this. And I wonder if Anna would have like the same or very similar kind of experiences. You you have to sift through what she's become because people need her to become a certain representation or symbol versus your attempt to sort of get to the real, quote unquote, real life person, mm-hmm. but yeah.
1: What's so amazing about this series is that Peter Morgan, who created it and wrote it, it was something like we'd never seen. This, this changing of a cast every two years has never been done. And I remember when the first series came out, you're like, well, there can never be another, uh, you know, queen other than Claire Foy or Prince Margaret other than Vanessa Kirby or, you know, how is this all going to work? But it is it's incredible what he's been able to do because we've completely gone along with it. And it's so much better than trying to age people (laughs) into these Mm -hmm. roles. It's just it was such a disruptive move, but it's worked out so well and I Mm -hmm. think of it as like a passing of the baton, like a relay, like, okay, here you go, here you go, here you go. Mm -hmm. And obviously, Emma Corrin beautifully brought Diana, entered into the, the timeline. When you took that baton, was there any dialogue between the two of you about it? Was there any conversation that happened?
0: Yeah, there was no conversation. And I could have reached out to them, but I did not at the time. I did post-shooting one season and I think it was, for me, it was unlike anything I'd ever done. It's an enormous amount of pressure as an actor and that's coupled with the fact that you're also attempting to play a person who's very active in living memory. There are these two kind of sets of of very distinct responsibilities you feel to the performances come just before you and for the Queen and you know, Philip, to the two other performances that have come before you, how to honour that and and you know, like in, in a basic term you just think, my God I really hope I'm as good as them you know, like how can I, mm-hmm. they were so brilliant, so that's kind of a totally unique thing because you don't usually have to play something that someone else has just played so excellently and then of course there's the real life responsibility that you feel that you owe to the telling as best as you can you know, to, to do this person's legacy or image or whatever justice. And they're two quite different pressures, but they both kind of work in tandem with each other when you start doing this job. And that was at times pretty overwhelming. Um, I I knew people who knew Emma. And so there were times where I thought maybe I should just reach out. But I think I Felt that, um, and then when I did, of course, they are just the loveliest, loveliest human being, you know, and also a very strange shared bond to think only we do know how that felt to do that within the framework of the show and within the kind of cultural consciousness pressure that we both experience. Mm. But um, I think in order to do it, m- my way quite basically i just thought i have to figure out a way to find ownership over this and create it from an imaginative place like i always try and work and that was sort of a lot of clawing back preconceived ideas and you know that i and pressures that i was putting on myself to try and get back to a sense of like what's the kind of genesis of this like how do I create it imaginatively and not from a too much of an outside in process and more of an inside out process which is a fiendishly difficult thing to do when you have so much outside available to you so yeah
1: well you were magnificent as Princess Diana I have to say obviously all we've seen is season five so I look forward to Season six, but I'm also kind of dreading it because it means the end. And like you said, it's the end of this this person. But you Mm -hmm. were just did beautiful work in this role. And I think so much of it is. Which is interesting. It's all these these pieces. So much of it is the movement. You have to get the movement and the angles and the voice. And then it's also the costumes and the posture and how you wear the costumes. And you made a really good point here about so much of what we know about Diana is purely visual. Those images have been burned on our brain. The revenge dress. You know, the certain the sweater with the black sheep on it. The, you know, mm-hmm. like all. the And you, you did those when they were in um, Egypt or when they were on the trip. The, trip, the thing on the boat, mm-hmm. the pictures that you basically recreated. So I'd love to hear mm-hmm. from a, from a actor's point of view how you put all of those things in the blender, basically. To, mm. Took the movement, took the voice, took the wardrobe. What that mm.
0: experience was like. It's, you know, even... Actually, I think you're helping me process because even just thinking about it with a little bit of retrospect, four or five days, yes. like... Honestly, it's just the greatest gift, creative challenge in the form of a gift that you could get as an actor. When when I think about doing those, like you said, those kind of images that have kind of burned, and they are, they're, they're so like present in our consciousness. It's wild. You know, there are only a few people who, you know, in living or whatever memory that we think of in that way we think we know exactly what that looks like and what it means to us and I guess I kind of I studied a lot I did a lot of homework to try and I guess understand the layers of the imagery you know if you take the revenge dress as a kind of obvious example of that there's the it's almost like there's the shell which is which is our kind of Quick grab imprint of that moment. And so I have to understand what the shell is constructed out of, like the physical kind of dress and then the actual movement in that moment. And then you kind of penetrate it deeper and you start to understand the kind of fabric of the moment, the kind of psychological fabric of it, and maybe how that's then impacting the muscularity of the person in the moment that was a fascinating thing to watch because i i was so i was fascinated by what in, and this is just my interpretation of it that like the luminosity and the kind of ferocious physical forward moving motion of that moment is is so triumphant and what it's concealing or perhaps what it's what it's kind of pushed forward by is this I mean, just the detritus, like the ashes of a person's real human pain, and it's a fascinating juxtaposition. And it's all housed in that one kind of imprint, that shell of that moment. And so, I, I sort of was given this task and to try and understand the layers of it and then embody them. And by the time I got to doing that moment, I was quite fluent investigating all those layers whether it was through photography or you know just photographs of moments I was recreating or it was through newsreel footage or or it's just kind of sort of invented imagery that Peter was inventing I was I look back and realize I was quite sort of fluidly swimming through the layers of it because I think that particular revenge dress moment you know, I had it up on the archive, like this enormous kind of Dropbox thing that we have. And I think I watched it about three times on my kitchen table and went, okay, I got it. And I, for whatever reason, I just thought, I know exactly what that is. Um, but I probably understood it because I'd been living this imaginative version of all of what the ashes consisted of. So I, I sort of understood something about it. And I was just determined to just... Mm, I don't know. I just couldn't, I could never get over the, the confidence with which she just spills out of that car and the way she just puts her hand forward. It's so forward and beautiful and she's so there, you know, and that just really moved me and I thought, I want to know what that is, you know, and so I got the task of kind of like living through those things and investigating them and that one in particular really caught up with me about two hours after doing it because we we shot it actually on the location it happened. It was freezing cold. It was absolutely freezing. I'm in this dress and you know of course the original thing had happened I think in June or you know the summertime. And uh I'm absolutely frozen. And I think a lot of well a lot of what you see in the crown are actors doing unbelievable acting to not look cold because we're constantly in these sort of two-man houses <laughs> in summer class. Um, but uh, they, they should teach like a, a class in drama schools like temperature evasion, how to pretend you're not feeling temperature. But um, e- yeah, I remember getting in the car and driving away from that set that day and it just absolutely sucker punched me in the gut. Just, just floored me that I something about it caught up and maybe it was just the thing that it conceals in a way is so devastating. And I think that's the bit that caught up with me mm-hmm. and I didn't expect it. I remember calling my director and crying, going, what the hell's just happened to yeah. it? Cause you shoot so fast, so fast and everyone's moving around and you're freezing cold and you're doing your best and you do 20 takes or whatever. And then suddenly you're like bundled up in your coat going home and just punched me in the guts that day.
1: Like What just happened? Yeah, Diana, yeah. I mean, the, so much of it, she never spoke to us. So she communicated so much through what she wore and those kind of punk mm-hmm. baseball hat, red jacket. The You know, I think of that iconic image that, that goes across Instagram always is her in the red ski suit, you know, in mm-hmm. Stad or Italy or wherever she is with a headband. I mean, it is kind of an amazing, it's such a unique, I don't think there's really anybody else that like her, that lived, you know. We interpreted so much by, by what she was wearing. It's, mm. it's such an interesting element. I loved the way you described, you know, just weaving it right through, through you and through your body and doing it. It's a great tool, but also it's got to be so daunting.
0: Yeah, it was, it was daunting because on like a purely human level, I look at pictures of, of her and I just think she's extraordinary. I'm just standing there in my like tracksuit in the, in the costume room, looking at these. <laughs> Sort of mood boards, just thinking. Just there's no way in hell. Like I can't. How do I? How am I supposed to? You know. I think I've always been able to stand in two two kind of roads, and one is the actor interpreting, and then the other is just sort of normal, plebeian person looking at this woman, just thinking. Just it's so good. You're so beautiful and just so luminous and so cool and, you know. So I would often like Sid. Robert's costume designer have to sort of drag me back into the like actor interpreting space because otherwise I just sit there going I just can't I don't I can't wear those shorts I don't know how to do it and (laughs) I was thinking about it today because you know having just been in my you know sloppy clothes for five days I just think there was you know and I kind of tend to do that as a person I I think because so much of what actors do is Is obviously is very performative and we kind of choose, you know, we have these very public facing periods of life where we're on red carpets or we're working in front of a camera and then some people are able to carry that energy on in life and I just can't. I just go straight under a rock and, you know, I like scramble through things and get dressed with my eyes closed and I don't care about it really. A lot of the time I think it's a way of like unraveling maybe work pressure or whatever. But she just sort of, like, the energy I think it took and the consciousness of the construction all the time was extraordinary. It was also extremely innovative. She was always reworking the wheel and sort of doing it for us, the public, and doing it for herself. And she just never had a bad fashion moment. And who else has ever done that, you know? And it was a gift, really, too, because it was it was like a guiding light for women as well. Like people followed that; they followed the trend you were saying, and and I think they appreciated as well that it was radical and it was rebellious and it was kind of like a messaging to them, and they they responded to that. And I don't know, I don't know anything. You know, I'm not a royal expert in any way, but I don't think anyone had ever dropped their kids off with a, you know, a pair of like denim shorts and a t-shirt on before. And so it was this radical challenge to the system all the time. No, she was
1: certainly a trailblazer in that regard. How did you and the costume team work together to emulate
0: Diana's style? Sid Roberts, who really does a lot of Diana's wardrobe. They're both amazing, Sid and Amy, but Sid and I really worked to just kind of construct the different shapes. I think the ones that we really loved were the ones that we got to make up a little bit. though There's a lot in season five where she's alone and so we were looking for a silhouette that spoke to that vulnerability I think and we sort of borrowed things from maybe more of like Emma's time and then created more of a 90s silhouette yeah I I thought she did a really beautiful job with that I always felt very clothes dictate almost like the journey you're going to go on with Mm. the scene sometimes with that role and so when I would put on you know, like a long kind of cottony skirt and a big, um, you know, cricket jumper or something. It, it just told my body that it could rest and that was going to dictate how, in a way, how open I could be. And whereas if you're putting a, a big gown on and you've got a tiara on your head, you know, the body responds to that and it knows that it's restricted by certain things and it's 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 going to be observed. It's really interesting how. Mm-hmm. How responsive it is in that way, and you get to manipulate that as an actor, and obvi- and then obviously sometimes flip it on its head, you know, because obviously in those really really public facing moments too, she's she's just so observed, mm-hmm. um,
1: especially in season five, obviously, and then again in season six, knowing very well Princess Diana's trajectory, it it really exposes this relationship with the press, celebrity. Fame going both ways, she's manipulating it, and then as we know now, she was manipulated. It's really kind of this toxic relationship, but she was able to have so much agency within this constant scrutiny and cameras. And like what you said, just every moment she stepped out of Kensington Palace, she was photographed right? Every little thing, whether it's mm-hmm. shorts or ball gown or going to the gym, whatever it is. I'm wondering for. Mm-hmm. You, Elizabeth, the person, did it change your perspective on fame at all or the media and the natural relationship between the two?
0: I think it did a lot. Um, I've always had a kind of I've always been wary of the concept of those of those things. I've always I've always sort of said, I don't really know what it is um, because it's a you know, it's an it's a projection onto a person, The, the person. And the, and the clearest cases of that are when somebody, you know, maybe somebody very young is suddenly in a big, let's say, a big Netflix show, and then all of a sudden overnight that person is still the same sort of human, same cluster of cells that wakes up in their same house, but, every, you know, eyes and awareness and curiosity and all those things, very natural, you know, because we love we love to be entertained and we love to watch people and we we love discoveries of people and but that's happening to that person it's a very difficult thing I think I imagine it would be a very difficult thing to navigate and and I've also I also have very dear friends who are very successful in this business and one of the prices they pay is that sort of constant eyes and the recognition and as a as an actor who I'm you know, I just think I'm so, I'm and I'm so grateful for it. I've, I've worked a lot, and I, and I've never had to deal with that before, really. And I know I've been in situations with friends who do, you know, whether it's like at the airport and their kids are running around, and somebody wants something from them, or and there's there's no, there's nothing. You understand where it comes from, but I can see how it wears down on that person energetically. So I've always been wary of it, thinking, you know, I think the greatest luxury or you know the the, or rather maybe that we all have a, a right to privacy which is taken away by fame it's a kind of deal that is made and sometimes it's made without the person realizing and sometimes perhaps they thought they could control it but it becomes unmanageable um, people's desire to know things about people or have information about them or discuss them and it's just an interesting thing in our culture. And, you know, once upon a time we had lots of gods and things and now we have celebrities and, and we love to deify and we need, we need people who we feel can be sort of discussed. And you know, I think it's I think it's maybe no, I'd say the UK and the US and Australia are pretty similar in that way. And um yeah, so so playing that role and watching and sort of experiencing in an imaginative sense the, the how painful that is to have your privacy taken away from you. And uh, one of the things that really struck me at times playing the role, which continued forth through shooting any time we did anything in public, which was quite a lot of the time actually, um, is, is how quickly people's relationship to you as an interesting kind of object or thing to be observed is, is sort of takes away the fact that you're a person behind that thing they're observing. Very, very rapid kind of experience. And it always struck me kind of, it was fascinating, but also quite unnerving that I could be standing on a street waiting for someone to call action and half a meter away, someone would be just standing there with their iPhone. You know, I could look straight into the phone and they don't blink. It's amazing to me. I'd be really terrified to do that to someone and I I wouldn't think to do that. But I thought, wow, that's so interesting. Like I, I no longer exist, but I am being observed in this way. And obviously with phones and social media and stuff, there's also this desire to just capture, capture, capture the person, the thing. So you somehow possessed that thing. And I i mean, sometimes I think, my God, like, it's unimaginable what would have happened if that the story we're telling had happened 20, 30 years later. I mean, it, it could barely be contained pre-internet. I think that, yes, it has shifted my opinion. I'm probably even more wary of it now. And I also think it can just be really, really debilitating for people. And I think the media in this country as well, I I didn't watch the Harry and Meghan, I haven't finished watching it, but one of the things that struck me as quite interesting was watching that documentary attempt to kind of very openly sort of show the relationship between media, the transactionary sort of relationship between media and royalty has always been there and I found that quite refreshing that somebody just sort of said by the way this is like inbuilt transaction we cannot control this and the public sort of expect it and it's very painful and there's that sort of section of the documentary where the four kids the the boys and the cousins Eugenia and Beatrice is sort of being photographed on that skiing holiday and it just it's killer, you know, It kills you. Just watch it. And you think, oh God, they're kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're just kids. And and it is. It's, it's feeding this sort of frenzy to know and possess. And I just think maybe it just feels more personal. Once upon a time, I just sort of looked at it and went, oh, gosh. And now I look at it and think, oh. oh I a different know.
1: perspective. Well, speaking yeah. of discovery, I first saw you in Baz Lehrman's The Great Gatsby. I believe that's when I first saw you playing Jordan, mm-hmm. the golfer, Jordan Baker, incredibly chic. But before that, you were a dancer. You had gone to drama school. You had had this whole life when us here in America were like, who's that? I distinctly remember that moment because obviously your co-stars were Leonardo DiCaprio, Carey Mulligan, and who I was very well aware of, both of them, and obviously Toby Maguire, very well aware of him. But you were the discovery mm-hmm. in that film. And I just think about that moment for you, basically, you know, when I was reading about it, and I knew it at the time, but I was refreshing my memory knowing that I was going to be speaking with you. You were like an hour out of drama school, basically. Like you've had, (laughs) not really, but like a year or something. It was very new. It is so unique. and, And obviously a lot of it is luck and a lot of it is being prepared and taking those opportunities and you know, living up to your potential. Right. So I'm I'm giving you a lot of credit for not fucking it up. Right. Because a lot of people will. Uh, Those kind of crazy. I'm going to do a play. And guess what? My co-star is Kate Blanchett. Now I'm going to do a movie. And, you know, I'm opposite Tobey Maguire and, and Leo. It is kind of mad when I think think about that, you know, your own personal trajectory. And then obviously the night manager, I think, really made you your your star quality it's such a shallow word but it does describe what it is actually that thing that just makes an actor pop off the plexiglass you know makes someone just you can't take your eyes off them you wondering what they're thinking when they're not talking you're absorbed in that character and that person portraying that character but yet you have like you said been able to walk around in the world relatively unrecognized, which is remarkable because you're also extremely tall <laughs> and elegant and limbs and the way you walk in the world is a beautiful thing to watch anyway. But it is kind of amazing to me to think about that, that you can put a baseball cap on and walk. But to me, it feels ages ago, but really it wasn't. Uh, it really has maybe been like a decade or so or less then. But looking back on those early experiences, is there any kind of memory or thing that stays with you?
0: Oh, I mean, yeah. Thank you for saying those very nice things. That's very nice. Um, yeah, I was uh, I was out of drama school, I think, two months when I got the, I got to do a screen test um, for Ronna Cress, who was casting Gatsby, who I just adore and uh you know she was in LA and I was in Melbourne where I would just finished school and I did a screen test um very nervous screen test my first I think my first ever screen test because we didn't do any screen we I went to like a very kind of like almost religiously theater based training school it was very avant-garde the methodology was kind of very physical lots of clowning lots of kind of Lots of Shakespeare and Chekhov, and like just kind of not. You know we were, we were told very very clearly like you are lucky if you get a job, period, and it will only kind of be in theatre, and um, which is which is what I was aspiring to at the time, and yeah. Uh, so we, I didn't have any training. I didn't know how to do a screen test, so I went in there and I was nervous as hell. There was a camera there, and, and the lovely reader who read very very quickly, which made me drop my lines like a hundred. You know. I've, I mean, I felt like I did it 12 times. I probably did it four times. And I and I was trying to do my American accent and I got my hair done <laughs> by a friend and I walked around the city with this plastic cap on my head for about four hours in an attempt to not fuck it up. I was like, I need my hair like this. It has to be like this. So then somehow that tape kind of magically actually found its way into somebody's hands who watched it and then... and. uh and then into Baz's, I don't know, I honestly don't even know how you get Baz to sit down. So it was like incredible that he sort of sat and watched it. And then and then they flew me to LA and the screen test I did with Toby at the chateau was one of the strangest and most memorable experiences of my life. But when I went to do that screen test, it was just Baz, you know, in one of those little rooms in the chateau, it's just this like... Little kitchenette and and little round table and and uh, I didn't even know what the Chateau Marmont was like. I'd never been to L.A. before, so I sat there with Baz and he had a handheld camera. And Toby and I read the scene where he comes to like a restaurant, and I'm sitting there with my long cigarette, and I and then I go in and I tell him the whole thing about Daisy and Gatsby and and Baz is like filming us like sort of like hovering up close and back and and I've got my hair in this fake little bob and then we get up and we stage the whole thing we kind of go around the table and we sit on the couch he's just like following that's like a puppy dog with this camera and then we go to the bedroom and then there's another scene and then I'm like lounging around on the bed and I'm just talking the whole time and I have no idea what accent I was doing and and um It went for a long time, probably went for about an hour and a half. And Toby was such a good sport. I mean, I can't only imagine he'd be like, who is this person? Like, she's never done a test clearly in her life, you know. But here I am just saunching and thinking. I mean, all I thought the entire time was I literally have nothing to lose. It was an incredibly freeing thing because I thought there's no way in hell this is going to come to pass. I'm probably never going to see these people ever again or be in this weird chateau place so I'll just do this thing and, uh, and I went downstairs and I remember thinking we've got two hours or something till I have to leave the airport and I was like oh look there's a nice sort of restauranty bit in this weird chateau place and I, and I sat there and I thought I'll have, a, I'll have a glass of champagne in the sunshine I was like 21, I think I was 20 at the time, I was 20 so is that legal?
1: Uh, in the States, no. probably not, but at the Chateau Legal,
0: <laughs> considering was where you were. Yes. I was like, <laughs> that's so funny. I was like, I'll have a bottle of your best champagnes. Huh? And so I sat there and I had this glass of champagne. And I remember the weirdest bit of the whole thing was not that audition was that up on the balcony of the, where I'd done the test in the room. Suddenly pops Baz's head. And he just sort of looks at me and he, he does this little point. And then from behind him, Leo just comes and stands there. So Gatsby-esque. And I'm just sitting in the sun with a glass of champagne. And sometimes I think I think that's what got me the job. The fact that I left the apartment and thought, you know what, I'll just sit here and have a glass of champagne in the sun. And I remember just seeing like Baz and Leo and Toby's faces, like this sort of trip tech. And, and, and I just sort of waved at them. And then they sort of retreated. And anyway, I got the job about a month later, but... I went back back to Melbourne and I never ever thought I was absolutely convinced that I wasn't that, that I wasn't going to get the job and the, and shooting the job in general was so the scale of it was so huge and glorious and beautiful to look at and long and the money just got thrown all over it just like it was like we just threw money in the air and shot the movie you know. If I had if I walked onto that movie this year, I'd think, what on earth is happening? But I had nothing to compare it to. So I just thought it was just this is normal. This is Yeah, you make a movie and you're covered in Tiffany diamonds and you have this fabulous wig on that costs like a house and you make a movie. I've talked to obviously
1: a lot of actors. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's all I I talk to really as artists and it is something about not giving a fuck and like the audition is the movie, you know, like you just Mm -hmm. go in and that's that's your shot and you are that character and you are that person for that limited amount of time and that is the experience, Mm -hmm. not like jumping ahead to like what the experience would be but all right, so I don't have that much more time with you and I want to ask some kind of silly questions. So let's say I'm going to Australia because you're Mm -hmm. from Melbourne. You live in London now. Where would we go? What's the one thing that I should do if I go to, where would you send me?
0: Okay. So I'm going to presume I can monopolize your time for a few hours. Yes. Yes. So I would say that we would get in the car and we would drive to this little fishing town that I know that's on the way to my parents' house. And you just, there's a, there's a big pier and on the end of the pier is a fish and chip shop. And we would get some fish and chips and we would sit in the car and eat them because that's that's what I do almost like, I'm like, that's what I need. I need to get, and always with my, my siblings, I'm like, we just need to drive to that fish and chip shop, sit in the car. The ocean is all around. Even if it's pouring rain, doesn't matter. They're the best fish and chips and that is just, it's so like vast. You would love it.
1: Mm, I would love it. I would love some fish and chips right now. I mean, delicious. <laughs> have you replicated the fish and chips in, in London or is it a totally other really delicacy difficult. that happens there?
0: It's difficult. It's controversial. I'm not allowed to knock the fish and chips here. I have to be very kind of toe the line. I don't think they're nearly as good, period. I have like four fish and chip shops near my house <laughs> and I've tried all of them and... I don't know mm. any of them, so, All right. Well, yeah. your secret's safe with with us here.
1: <laughs> All <laughs> right. Listening. So, so you have now is your downtime for a little bit, right? You're you you can go under until you have to rise again and and do marketing and mm-hmm. ADR, which mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. listeners is when you have to kind of like retract some things. You never you never know what's going to come down the road. But when you are in London, and I've been asking everyone this question because I think it's I was so kind of. I don't know, in it the last couple of seasons through COVID. I was I was talking about fear and little wins and stuff like that. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to be really shallow and just ask people some silly things. When people do recognize you, what do they say to you on the
0: street? Okay, I'm going to be really honest with you. And you can believe me or not believe me. But in the UK, I have a belief that the, when people recognize you, they try very hard to pretend they've never seen you before. <laughs> They, they do like a triple take and then just walk in the, even in a bookshop, they'll just walk away. I, since the crown has been out, I think I've been recognized or or people have said something to me twice. One was an old man in a pub. He was very nice. And one was um, the BA cabin director named Graham, who gave me a box of chocolates. I love Graham. I loved him. Um, but I think it's kind of cultural. At first, I thought, "Oh God, they hate me!" I was like, "Someone's going to spit on me in the Sainsburys." But then I, but then I thought, actually, I think that they kind of don't want to. It's just sort of very British. They don't want to like invade your day. Um, in America, I feel like people are much more. They just sort of come up and they. Um, oh, that's not true. One man when I came out of the hairdresser also said something to me. Um. <laughs> them on one hand and um, but in america people come up and they're just very they're always straight to the point about the crown usually they would just say i you know i thought you were amazing in that show and then sometimes people say i loved you in the night porter the night watchman the night what's it called <laughs> the night manager uh the night porter is my favorite um and that's yeah people just are like very very kind that's kind of what they do and what is it's it nice. like in Australia, though, right? I mean, your home... Nobody ever says boo. No. <laughs> oh, not a peep. They, they're almost like they'll just disown you. I think maybe it's similar to the Brits or... Um, but I, yeah, just very, very rare. I'd say it's even less frequent. I don't know. Maybe I just don't... I, You know what? I, I've got a little bit of a theory, which is that I often don't look like myself when I'm shooting. So although I'm very tall, I, I, uh, you know, I did maybe in the night manager when my hair was shorter, people recognised me slightly faster. Um, but I've really only done one movie. I did a movie called Widows with Stephen Green a few years ago and that was maybe the closest I looked like my normal self walking down the street. Apart from that, because actually the process of becoming Diana is... You know, it's not extensive, but it's very transformational. Like, what my makeup artist does is, you know, the wig and da-da-da. So, but I think people are polite here. At first I thought, oh, no, they hate me. But I think they're just polite. <laughs> <laughs> well, Elizabeth, it's, it's been
1: such uh, a joy to catch up with you and see you. I think this is um, maybe our number three. I was trying to think of, like, two, the Q is beautiful, three, four, whatever. Anyway, I hope to keep... Um, i'm keeping track uh, and i love to see uh what you do next and your choices obviously after the crown and whatnot but you're just a, a you. pleasure to watch and a pleasure to talk to you. so thank you very thank much you. for the
0: time thank you for having me it's really nice to talk to you
1: season five of the crown is streaming now on netflix thanks so much for joining me i'm krista smith your host and creator of the show Skip Intro is produced and edited by Isabel Arricchio and engineered by Dave Corwin. Special thanks to our coordinator, Alyssa Hillman. Please subscribe, rate, and review Skip Intro wherever you've been listening. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. If you enjoy the podcast, please go to netflixq.com for more. That's Netflix, Q-U-E-U-E.com.